Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 342 of the Tech Bootcamp. The title of today's interview is Congenitally Courageous, an interview with Amy Packer. I am Ashley Marba. And I'm Richard Johannesson. And today's episode is about a person that started off very sick as a little girl. Listen to how her mom had to courageously stand up for her and find justice for her daughter. And then again, her becoming a mom and having to stand up for her daughter when she recognized Lyme symptoms in her daughter. Both of them had to be congenitally courageous. Amy Packer, welcome to the Tick Boot Camp podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, we're really excited to have you, Amy. And, you know, you have been someone that we've been targeting for this podcast for a long time. And we want to talk to you about your journey and your family's journey and particularly your daughter's journey. But I just say that as a preview, we want to let this sort of unfold the way it's supposed to unfold. And, you know, I have, a, I have great news for our listeners. One of my favorite people in the world is my guest co-host today, Ashley Marber. She's been kind enough to agree to come back and work with me, despite me doing a terrible job the last time we were together. So, Ashley, say, say hi to the folks and, and, uh, and let them know that you're going to make sure that I don't make too many mistakes today. Hi, Tech Boot Campers. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to get into it. So let's do that, Amy. Let's get into it. So why don't you folks first share with folks uh, where you're calling in from? Um, I live in the western North Carolina mountains in a little small town called Fairview right outside of Asheville. So you're a southern gal. Yes. <laughs> Have you always been a southern gal or is that a recent place for you to live? Born and raised here. All right, so we have a born and raised Southern gal. Hopefully you will not be offended by my Northern accent. We <laughs> New Yorkers do not speak English properly. So I, I apologize in advance to you and all of our listeners. So um, talk to us about what it was like to grow up in uh, in, in North Carolina. Um, it was great. We kind of have the best of both worlds. We get all four seasons, which I am so thankful for. I visited other places and it's either just hot or cold and dry or humid. And we get all four seasons. We get the snow, we get the spring, we get fall, a summer, but not like dying of a heat stroke summer, just a nice summer. And where we have the mountains, we can drive three hours and be at the beach, or we can go on a hike, or we can drive two hours and be in a big city. So it was really nice kind of having everything we needed, but always being able to come back to the country recluse at home. So so talk to me about, you know, where you specifically grew up. Did you grow up in a rural area? Was it a suburban area? What was it like in, in, in your community where you have these nice four seasons and uh, you sort of have moderate summers and winters, it sounds like. Uh, but what was it like? Uh, what, was it, what, what was it like where you grew up? So I lived in the little small town called Fairview at first when I was little. And it's like we have one grocery store, one gas station cows are your neighbors kind of thing. Then I moved into the city when I was starting kindergarten. We lived in the city until probably ninth grade. And that was nice. I realized I'm not a city girl. I like to be close enough to go into the city, but I really enjoy being in the country. And we moved back to Fairview when I was about 14 or 15, when I started to get really sick, we moved in with my grandparents um, so they could help take care of me. And it was nice to be back in the country. All right. So let's talk about uh, when you say you got sick, you, you're, you're starting to share with us or preview for us that you, uh, you, you got sick from Lyme disease and you got pretty sick during your childhood, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Now, prior to getting sick from Lyme disease, uh, were you aware of ticks and were you aware of Lyme disease? And was it something that you had the capacity to protect yourself from coming in contact with? I knew about ticks. I knew about Lyme disease. I remember when I got bit when I was little, but because we're in the South and a lot of people just assume that the ticks up North are the only ones that can give you Lyme disease. It was just, oh, we don't have that here. Our ticks are harmless. You'll be fine. And you just kind of like heard of people having Lyme, but it wasn't like a thing here. All right. So let's talk about that tick bite that you got when you were seven years old, right? Now, yes. Um, what, what were the circumstances surrounding that tick bite? Meaning what were you doing and how did you find this? Or did your family find this tick on you? So I was at summer camp. I spent all of my summers at summer camp because my mom was a single mom and obviously there's no school during the summer. And so literally the whole summer I was at summer camp and I loved it. And we were doing something in the gym. I don't remember like having some performance or something. And I was next to my counselor and I scratched the back of my ear and I said, can you please look. I think I have a scab on the back of my ear. It feels really weird. And my counselor looked and she screamed and I was seven. And so I started freaking out. I thought like I was like bleeding to death or something. And they brought me to the camp nurse and there was a huge tick on the back of my ear and they were trying to figure out how to get it off. What was the best way? One girl was like, burn it off. And they're like, no, don't do that. Let's use tweezers. And so I was terrified. And it was so big. It was probably at the size of like my pointer fingernail. It was really engorged and it was on the back of my ear, which I had never heard of a tick being there before. Like my mom would always do tick checks. She would like check our ankles and stuff like that. Or, you know, just armpits, whatever the things we knew to check for. And we would do the scalp, but never thought the back of an ear. And they took it off and they put it in a Ziploc baggie and they called my mom and they sent home the tick. And my mom called the doctor and they said, just put it in the freezer as long as she doesn't get sick in the next two weeks, she's fine. And I didn't get sick in the next two weeks. So we just never thought anything of it. All right. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things that of course makes me shudder as a dad uh, is we've had many, many people on this podcast who had gotten bitten by a ticket summer camp and became very sick during their childhood and or their early adult lives. In fact, uh, Liza Blas, who's uh, one of our good friends and, uh, and a fellow podcaster, um, her, her daughter uh, was bitten by a tick um, at a summer camp, and uh, she actually didn't discover it, I think, until either just before or during our podcast uh, that, you know, so just talk a little bit about the, the, the summer camp experience and whether or not, uh, you know, you were given any tools as a camper to check yourself for ticks and to, you know, and to make sure that you were safe, because it sounds like you had a, you know, a Lyme and tick woke mom and she was checking your ankles and checking you out to make sure that, um, you know, you didn't have ticks on you, but you are with your mom, you're at camp. And now, you know, the little girl who has to take care of herself finds herself with an engorged tick, meaning it was biting you for a long time, several days. And, um, and you find this by, you know, just sort of like touching the back of your ear. So were there any precautions that the camp was taking to either encourage you or teach you how to check yourselves or was the camp going through the process of having counselors check you to make sure that you didn't have any ticks biting you no I had never heard of any ticks while we were at camp it was always like 
oh, make sure you put on your bug spray so you don't get mosquito bites or things like that or stay on the path so a snake doesn't bite you. But no one ever talked about ticks. I didn't know what a tick looked like. I just knew it was this scary bug that I didn't really want on me. But they never said anything about it. It was just don't get bit by a mosquito and don't get bit by a snake and stay away from the bears. All right. So you had bigger problems in North Carolina camp. You had bears. You had <laughs> uh, you had uh, snakes. Uh, so you had these bigger problems that you're aware of. And of course, uh, that is something you should protect yourself against. But they didn't seem to be as concerned about ticks as they as they uh, as they should have been. And now your mom gets called and you're told to keep it in a freezer for two weeks. And uh, after two weeks, since you're fine, I guess the tick goes into the garbage. And you move on with your life until you can't move on with the other. So talk to us about how your health was beginning to change after that tick bite uh, at the age of seven. So my health, I started to show symptoms within that year, but we didn't put two and two together. It started out, I would just get dizzy every once in a while, but I, they just assumed I wasn't eating enough and that I just had low blood sugar. So they were like, have some yogurt, have an orange, peanut butter, you'll be fine. And that was all of second grade. I just remember getting so dizzy all the time and feeling like the room was spinning and they thought I was being like, my teachers thought I was dramatic. My family just thought I wasn't eating enough. And then it kind of went away and I was fine. Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I started to not feel super good, but it was like stomach stuff. And so they were like, oh, well, you can't have dairy now. That's the problem. Just cut out, cut out cheese and you'll be fine. And so I stopped eating dairy a little bit. And I was like, well, I guess, I mean, it helped. It was less inflammatory food. So I did feel a little bit better not having the dairy. And then that went away. Sixth grade, the beginning of the year, I was fine. You know, starting middle school, everything was going good. And then the second half of sixth grade, I had some stressful family stuff happened and sent my body into overdrive. And I started now all of my symptoms were coming back, but all at once. And so I was dizzy while also my stomach hurting. And then I started to pass out. I had injuries that weren't healing. I was in a lot of pain. My teacher, I know she didn't mean it, but she didn't believe me and made it me seem like I was looking for attention and that I was trying to distract the class. Um, I wasn't able to finish out the year at school. So they did the last um, month of school. They sent all my work home and I did all of that. I stayed with my grandma and did my school. I begged to not have to go back the next year. And my mom and my grandma said, if I made it through seventh grade, then I could be homeschooled after that. I barely made it through seventh grade. I think I missed 55 days because I was so sick. Um, they weren't going to let it be excused, but I had doctor's notes for all of them and my grades were fine. So the last day of school, my grandma picked me up and I said, so can I be homeschooled now? And she was like, I didn't know you were being serious about that. All of seventh grade, I remember people were joking. I was asking you to go to the nurse's office all the time because I needed Tylenol because my head hurt so bad. And they were like, oh, Amy just wants to skip class. And I was like, no, I'm in pain. You don't understand. Like I was so sick and nobody was listening, but I was so excited because then I finally got to be homeschooled and eighth grade was good, except for my homeschool was a little different because at that time it was still just my mom and I living in the city, grandparents in the country, but my mom worked full time. And so my grandma homeschooled me. So I still had to get up in the morning. My mom would take me. 
to my grandparents and I would do school there and my mom would come pick me up. But being with my grandma on a day-to-day basis, she was able to see that I wasn't okay. And they realized at that point, I wasn't just like a cranky teenager who didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. They realized that something else was going on at that point. All right. So, I mean, let's pause there for a second. I want to, I want to walk back and, and, and revisit some of the stuff you shared with us. And, and the first thing I want to talk with you about is the school nurse, mm-hmm. right? Because school nurses are really important people in the lives of young children, right? Because mm-hmm. they're the one outlet where we can ask for medical assistance separate from our parents, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in so many cases, school nurses are not properly trained. They don't know anything about Lyme disease. And although they're the you know, there's sort of like the first line of defense where a child can seek medical assistance on their own. Um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of very positive uh, outcomes when children are seeking their their own medical care. So how are your school nurses treating you? And did any of them ever think that, um, you know, perhaps or suggest to you that perhaps you needed to be tested for Lyme disease? Um they were nice. They weren't dismissive, but they also never thought anything really was going on. They were aware of like some family situations going on. And so they just kind of assumed that I was anxious and stressed and not eating enough and not getting enough sleep. Um, so they weren't necessarily dismissive, but it was never, oh, something more serious was going on. They just thought that I was anxious and had a lot going on. Well, that's the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, right? Because one of the things that you would hope that medical professionals would understand is that stress is immunosuppressive, right? Mm-hmm. And one way of looking at a stressful environment is that somebody is exhibiting psychosomatic symptoms, right? That they are not really physically sick, but they're exhibiting physical symptoms because they're under a lot of stress. But another way of looking at this is that because you are under a lot of stress, your immune system is compromised and you're getting sick as a result of that stress, right? And what I think is really interesting, and I'd like your thoughts on this, is it seems like 100 times out of 100 times when a child is under stress and they go to a school nurse or their regular doctor, we're going to talk about your regular doctors in a minute, they come to the conclusion that the symptoms are psychosomatic Mm -hmm. or not real at all, rather than the result of an immunocompromising event. Now, are you one of the 100 out of 100 times where, you know, everybody was just assuming that your symptoms were psychosomatic or attention-seeking rather than than the result of a a compromised immune system? Yeah, definitely. I was just always told, well, this is what happens when you're really anxious or really stressed. When you have a lot going on, your body's just going to react this way. I was told that it was normal and it's not. So now talk to us about the doctors now, because you, you were, we're now in this window of time between the age of seven and the age of 14, where, where your, you know, where your symptoms are very, very typical Lyme disease symptoms, right? I mean, one of the reasons why so many medical professionals suggest to us that we are, um, that we are um, not really sick uh, and that we're either exhibiting psychosomatic symptoms or we're uh, or we're making them up is because the symptoms migrate, right? And your symptoms are migrating. You had this symptom, then you had that symptom, you had this symptom, you had that symptom. So when you were going to your doctors in that window of time between the ages of seven and 14, and you had all these migrating symptoms, um, how were the doctors treating you? And were they at any point tying them all together for you and saying, hey, 
they have migrating symptoms. And that's what happens with Lyme disease. Was there any of those kinds of conversations with your doctors? Um, so I got a lot of she's anxious, she's looking for attention, she has low blood sugar, she's not eating enough. Um, I broke my wrist in between fifth and sixth grade and it didn't heal right. Um, so that started the ortho appointments. And in that, uh, they sent me to a rheumatologist because I was complaining about pain and the inflammation. So, so I went to a rheumatologist and they said I had arthritis. And so at that point we were kind of like, okay, we're getting an answer. Like that almost felt sufficient at the time. We're like, okay, arthritis, that's all it is. They were like, once she's not in pain, then she won't feel nauseous or dizzy anymore. And she'll just feel better. Um, that was obviously not the case. Um, they tried well, to put me on a Let's visit that together, Amy. Uh, and 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 Ashley is going to be stepping in in a couple of minutes because we're going to get to your diagnosis in two short years, uh, and, and we have a medical expert with us. So we're we're, we're going to want to talk about that in, in a little more detail. But um, it's interesting that what was happening was you had all these migrating symptoms, um, and then they just diagnosed you with a symptom, and then. Mm -hmm even though the rest of those symptoms that you were suffering from first migrating and then all at the same time, were not related to arthritis. They said, all right, well, we now diagnose you with the symptom and then everything else, although it really isn't necessarily connected to that symptom, we're going to say it's connected to that symptom because, you know, you're nauseous because you're in pain or you're, you know, so give me a reaction to how you feel about that in retrospect that they just decided that they were going to diagnose you with one of your symptoms and then loosely tie everything else to that symptom rather than saying, hey, what's the root cause of this, right? And, you know, and the other part that I'd like you to comment on is, is that you're a little girl and you have arthritis. How does a little girl get arthritis if there's not something else going on? And why aren't we looking for that root cause? And maybe that gets us. So react to those two things for me. Yeah. So when I first got like the arthritis diagnosis, I was almost like happy. I'm like, yes, we know what's going on. Like I'm going to get better now. But then like you were saying, it kind of sunk in for me and my family. Like, but why does she have arthritis in seventh grade? Like, that's not normal. Like I was an athlete. I was a skinny mini eating as clean as possible, like doing good at everything. Like there was no reason for me to have arthritis. And after the excitement of a diagnosis wore off, we realized like there's something more going on here. We have two more years before you finally get your diagnosis, right? You get your mm -hmm. diagnosis at 16. Um, how, how did your life function during that two-year window between you now have your false diagnosis of arthritis and you finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis at 16? So that was the first of a few diagnoses that I had before I got my actual diagnosis of Lyme. After arthritis, then like the nerve pain started and the different things with like headaches, neck pain, nerve stuff going on. And so got sent to a neurologist. They did uh, MRI, EMG, EEG, sent me to all these fancy hospitals for all these testings. They were like, oh, you have MS, you have fibromyalgia. Oh, maybe it's a brain tumor. Like, let's figure this out. Um, and obviously those all came back negative. And so then they just put me on a super high dose of gabapentin and sent me out the door and said, see you in a year. 
All right. So how did how did you finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis? And before you got your diagnosis, was Lyme ever even a consideration of yours or your family's? And, you know, did, did anybody ever say to you, you know, you sound kind of Lyme-y or you may have Lyme disease. Did you get any of that before you finally got a diagnosis? So I had a friend who I met through social media who had Lyme disease. And we always just kind of joked about how it was weird that we had some of the same, like same symptoms. Um, but obviously I didn't have a diagnosis and she got sick pretty quick after being bitten. And so I didn't think that I could have had that too, because my symptoms started a lot later and I got mono, I guess when I was 14 ish and I didn't get better. And she was like, Hey, my mom's going to send you something about people who get mono and then don't get better. It's normally like a Lyme infection flaring up. And we read it and my mom just had like an aha moment. And my grandma at first was like, oh, I don't know. Like, you know, we, we don't, she didn't want to like slap another diagnosis on me if that wasn't the case. So she was a little hesitant, but at this point I had been on the couch for three months. I hadn't gotten up. I couldn't do anything. I was so sick. And we were like, something else is going on. My mom brought me to the doctor and she brought up. Lyme disease to my doctor and my doctor goes absolutely not we don't have that here no need to check for that my mom um, stood in the doorway and would not let my doctor leave until she tested me for Lyme disease and all co-infections okay so how'd that go um they called back two weeks later and my doctor goes I don't understand she tested positive for all of these things Okay, so let's pause there for a second. Ashley's going to start to take you through the diagnostic journey and the treatment journey in a moment. But I want to ask you one more thing before before I hand you off to Ashley, and that is um, one of the things that our friend Phyllis Bedford uh, had commented on recently is that Lyme disease is known as the supermarket uh, diagnosis disease, that in most cases, people get diagnosed in the supermarket rather than through a doctor. So you went through many, many doctor's appointments and you had all these very, very clear Lyme disease symptoms, at least from my perspective. One of your friends says to you, hey, it sounds like you have Lyme disease. Her mom sends information over to your mom about Lyme disease. And your mom literally has to play linebacker and stand in the doorway and refuse to let the, the doctor out of the room before you would get tested for Lyme disease. When it was so clear, from folks in the supermarket and folks on social media that you had, you had Lyme disease. So why don't you comment on that? How do you feel about all these doctors failing you for all those years? And it wasn't until you had someone in the community observing the similarity of your symptoms that you could finally get a diagnosis. I think it was honestly kind of hard for me because growing up, I mean, you just kind of assume that the doctor knows everything. You're sick. You go to the doctor, they help you. Like that's what they're there for. And then to be failed constantly by the doctors and then having to start advocating for yourself was such a switch for me. And it made me question literally everything. So Ashley, before you, uh, before you take over and take uh, Amy through this next phase of her journey, I, I, I'm going to ask you for your reaction as a nurse, um, as a mom. And as somebody who has uh, had to manage a Lyme disease journey herself, how are you feeling emotionally right now when hearing this horrific story about what Amy and her family had to go through to get a diagnosis? As a mom, it's heartbreaking. Like I'm holding back tears right now because I 
am so thankful that me getting diagnosed first in my Lyme journey and recognizing those symptoms in my children so they didn't have to suffer. So it breaks my heart when I hear of children having an obvious tick that's engorged on the back of your ear and that healthcare professional failing. That's a failure in the healthcare community. And I, it, I get very passionate about that because your job is to take care of people and listen. And, you know, how do you know um, if a patient has, is having pain? Is it your assumption or, or is it because we're listening and the patient is always right? So it, it absolutely breaks my heart when children have very obvious things and the people that are there in place to take care of them fail so horribly. I want our healthcare community to do better. And again, with the school nurse failing again, like, you know, for you to come in that many times and for them to kind of, you know, brush it off or, you know, maybe offer you Tylenol and that's it and not having a deeper conversation and wanting to go more into what is happening with this little girl that she's so sick all the time. Um, and then I want to say, I applaud your mom for her bravery and her persistence. Like how amazing <laughs> that she stood in the doorway and was like, no, I'm not leaving till I have an answer. And unfortunately, that's what we have to do in a Western medicine society. We really, I mean, the key word is advocate, 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 advocate for yourself and your children. I think that's huge. I hate that we have to be that person for ourselves. We have to be our own cheerleaders. We have to be the squeaky wheel, but that's the only way we seem to get any answers. Um, so I just want to say, yeah, I, I, the healthcare community needs to do better. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So actually, uh, before you take Amy through the uh, next phase of her journey, I do want to comment that the only way the story could have been better is if Amy's mom really did tackle the doctor and tackled her down to the floor, <laughs> I would have really loved that part of the story. But standing in the doorway, is, it makes me happy enough, but I would have really loved to hear the tackle story. But I'm sorry, Ashley, why don't you take Amy through the 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 um, the rest of the diagnostic and treatment elements of her, okay. uh, of her journey. Maybe in a movie version, we can recreate that. That's the next step. We're going to make a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so Amy, um, I'm sorry. I also have Lyme, so I have Lyme brain. So please remind me, how old are you at the time of your, di your diagnosis of Lyme? Um, I was 14, 15, somewhere around there. Okay. And the doctor that's finally telling you what this is, this is your pediatrician, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So tell me what, what happened next when you heard that it was Lyme, did they explain to you, you know, what that means or what your plan of care is going to be? What happened very next? Um, they handed me a two week, uh, cycle of doxycycline and said, you'll be good after this. And at first I was like, well, if it's that easy, like, let's go for it. Um, made me feel so sick, especially having at that point been, I had been sick for seven or eight years at that point. And so it was just making all of the Lyme bugs so angry, not making me any better. I did my two weeks and my doctor goes, you're good. We don't even need to retest. And at that point, my mom was like, okay, let's, we've got to figure out something else because this is not going to work. 
So he prescribed doxycycline, which I know is very common in Western medicine. That's what I was taught as a nurse that, you know, somebody gets bit by a tick, they have a bullseye rash, you treat them with doxy, um, no more than two weeks. I think now they say the max is 21 days. And um, so you're experiencing all of these sensations. You said that your Lyme was worse. Can you tell us more about what exactly was going on with your body? What, what were you feeling? What symptoms were you having? At that point of my diagnosis, sorry, my daughter tried to come in here. Um, when I got my diagnosis is when I was my sickest. So at that point I was bedridden. I had to use a wheelchair when we went out and then taking the medicine, I just had all of this die off without proper drainage or anything like that. And so this die off was just turning right back over into my body and making me even sicker. And at that point we had no clue what to do. Did your doctor ever want say to you Herxheimer, or this is possibly something that could happen when you take this medicine? No, they never told me anything like that. They told the only thing they told me was to stay out of the sun because I might get a sunburn being on it. I can relate to that. I have very similar experience. And um, so you're finally have a diagnosis. You take the doxy. It makes you even more sick. So you only take it for two weeks. And then what, what happened next? Because I hear, I heard you say your mom and you're both like, no, this can't be it. This is not the answer. Yeah. So my friend who had a Lyme told me about a doctor she had seen in Virginia, um, who did like the Zyto scan and then some more like natural treatments and stuff. And it sounded crazy to us, but at that point we were desperate to try anything. Um, and that he was able to do remote visits and we scheduled a visit and my friend who had Lyme and her mom came over to kind of be with, be with us through the visit and stuff. And they did the scan. It's like a biofeedback scan and just runs everything through your body. But we decided to not tell the doctor ahead of time of my Lyme diagnosis or anything like that. We just wanted a fresh second opinion without him knowing anything going on. The first thing he said was, have you ever been diagnosed with Lyme disease? And I said, yes, just recently. And he goes, it looks like you've had this infection for about eight years. Is that right? And I was like, yes, that's right. That's insane. How do you know that? And through the visit, we found Lyme, all the co-infections, parasites, the mold, just the perfect storm for Lyme to be present. So we started the uh, natural treatments like the herbs, the supplements, um, and scheduled an appointment to go up to Virginia and do um, some ozone treatments, light therapy, and different things like that. Out of all of the things that you were doing, would you say there's one thing that you felt helped you more or worked better than the other things? Because I feel like they kind of want to throw so many things at you all at once and it's hard to discern, well, what is working and what's not? So is there one thing that you would say really helped you? I don't know if it was necessarily one thing that helped me, but I think more so the order of doing things and learning that I couldn't just kill off Lyme before my body was ready to as much as I wanted to. Like I had to build my body up to a place where it was ready to fight. And so get my adrenals good, get my drainage good, get my immune system good, and then fight and then take a break and then rebuild. And 
you know, get my uh, vitamins back up and my nutrients and the minerals and everything like that. And kind of a cycle, we would do like a three month treatment plan where we would get my body ready to fight. And then I would fight and then I would rebuild, take three months off and then go back to that. And it worked for a long time. I mean, I would go up to Virginia two or three times a year by my third treatment. I was walking around the mall when the first time I went up there I was in a wheelchair and I was symptom free, honestly, from my fourth treatment up until 2020. So when you're saying you're, you're rebuilding, I'm just curious to know for my own <laughs> selfish reasons, when you're rebuilding and you're strengthening everything, what specifically are you taking? What are you doing to help support your adrenals or support your gut or your immune system? What are there specific things that you were taking? Um, I was doing a lot of Myers cocktails, like through IVs. Um, chiropractic care was something really helpful for me as well. And then just supplementing, like doing B12, but learning how to do methylated B12 because I have an MTHFR mutation, which I had never heard of until having Lyme and all these different things. And just learning that, listening to my body and what it needed instead of doing something that I read in a book was really big for me. I think that's so important. I, I feel like you said a key thing in this journey is listening to your body. I think that's huge because a lot of doctors want to kill, kill, kill. And in my experience, that's the route I started and it debilitated me. I had to stop working as a nurse. I was practically bedridden and I wish I had known about the supportive process first, the healing and supporting your immune system and your gut and all of those things. I think that's so important to get that message out there for other fellow Lymies. I think that's huge. Um, so now how old are you at this point when you were doing all this treatment? So I did treatment basically all through high school really started in between ninth and 10th grade and then did it throughout high school and started off high school bedridden, finished captain of the cheerleading squad. I was doing so good. I was so healthy. I thought at that point, you know, this is it. I've done it. I've gotten better and I'm not going to have to deal with it again, which ended up not being the case. So when, um, how long would you say that was going on for till you, you said you got sick again in 2020? Yes. And was there anything specific that happened that brought back your symptoms or what happened in 2020? So the year before in 2019, I had my daughter and my family was really nervous and worried for me when we found out I was pregnant, just not knowing how my body was going to handle it. Um, but I did good. I actually felt the best in pregnancy that I ever had. And I did good having her. I had some complications with bleeding, but they were able to get everything under control. After having her, I was worried that I might, you know, come out of remission because I had read some things about that, but I was still doing good until she had turned one. I started to go downhill and that's when I noticed my daughter having some symptoms. We started to get sick at the same time and we had had flooding in our home. We live in a basement apartment and there was flooding and there was mold that we didn't know about. And that's when we started to get sick is when there was the mold that we found. 
Yeah, I think black mold definitely exacerbates Lyme symptoms. Um, I'm curious to know, had any of your doctors talked to you about congenital Lyme or that that was a possibility to transfer Lyme uh, to your daughter while she was in utero? I knew that it was a possibility, but they had told me it wasn't super likely because I didn't have an active Lyme infection when I was pregnant. Um, but at that time, we also did not know that my husband had Lyme. And so both of her parents had Lyme, which we were unaware of at the time, and which kind of gave her not great chances of having it as well. So you said she started developing symptoms at one. What did that look like for her? How did you, knowing what you had gone through and now seeing this in your daughter, what, what was she exhibiting? Um, so I started noticing some muscle tremors, which were some of my first symptoms as well, which I had forgotten to say earlier. Um, just shaking. Everyone thought that I was always really cold. And I was like, no, I just can't help it. I'm just, I have these tremors that wouldn't go away. And I started to notice that in her and she was about 10 or 11 months old and we could tell she was about to start walking. So we were like, okay, we were so excited, you know, got a little walker. And instead of, you know, a month later, her walking a month later, she could only crawl. Like she was regressing, but it was just physically like there was at that point, she hadn't had any like cognitive delays or anything like that. She was ahead. I mean, her vocabulary before she was one, I know everybody says their kid is super smart, but I was like, my child is a genius because she had sentences before she was one. I was like, she is brilliant. But first the physical like delay started to happen. And she went from almost walking to not being able to walk at all. And the muscle tremors started and she started to be a little more tired in her stomach. She wasn't able to handle more foods. And then she started to lose more words. And I remember crying to my husband one night and I was like, she's sick. She has Lyme. I see it. Like, and I, she can't say anything. And that was the hardest part for me to look at her. And I was like, at that point, I was so sick. The nerve pain had started for me again. I had been healthy for like four years and then it all started coming back. So I was trying to handle all of that. I couldn't work at this point. So my husband's working a bajillion hours a week. Then I'm here in a moldy house trying to take care of my sick baby. And it was just so hard at that point. I, I was so depressed. I almost don't remember that time. I'm so sorry. My, my heart hurts for you and your daughter. I, I can imagine, and I know as a mom watching your children and noticing Lyme symptoms in them, knowing how you feel and you're able to have the words to say what's going on with you. Um, and then having to watch your child go, go through that. I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things ever. So once you had that thought and you realized she's sick, how did, what did you do to advocate for her? How did you find the right person to not only listen, but to get her help? So at that point, we were creeping up on like her 18 month appointment and we were switching uh, pediatricians. They um, were integrative medicine. So I was a little more hopeful that they would be, you know, receptive to my thoughts on everything. Um, at that point, she was 18 months. She wasn't walking and we brought her in. 
they thought she was the cutest thing ever, which she is. And I was like, okay, it's starting strong. I didn't, I was going in hopeful, but I didn't expect to get the news we got that day. It was, okay, you know, she's doing good with this, this, and this, but something's wrong. And I knew something was wrong, but to hear the doctor say something's wrong was just really hard. But what stood out the most to me was they said, well, she has some symptoms of this, but not all of it. And she has some symptoms of this, but not all of those symptoms either. She also has symptoms of these three other things, but not all of the symptoms. It's not making sense as to why she has some symptoms and not the rest. And that's when I brought up that I had chronic Lyme disease and they go, oh, well, that's a very strong possibility. And in that moment, I was like, wait, you're not going to argue with me or say that that's not a real thing. And they're like, no, that would make a lot of sense. And so they tested her there, her first appointment, and she tested positive for Lyme disease. Wow. I mean, I, that gives me hope to hear that they didn't argue with you when you said that, because I, a lot of doctors like to say chronic Lyme doesn't exist that's not helpful to anybody. So for them to hear you and then take it one step further and do the test, I, I feel like there is a little bit of hope out there yeah. <laughs> with, with our doctors. So once you had confirmation, you trusted your gut, you're watching your daughter, you're advocating for her. Once you got the diagnosis that she did have Lyme, what, how was her treatment different than yours? So at that point, I was looking for treatment for both of us because my prior doctor had closed. And as if I didn't have enough stress going on, I now had to figure out where the heck were we going to go for treatment. And I knew I wanted to get it right with her. I didn't want to just try antibiotics and hope for the best and damage her gut and just see how things went. So we started out, they got her in physical therapy since she wasn't walking and just to get those muscles moving and help her. Um, she just had low muscle tone and they just wanted to build up the muscle, get her moving. And at that point I was researching doctors. I didn't know what to do. I got home one day and this sweet lady that I had not seen in years messaged me on Facebook and told me about a doctor that her mom had just started going to, who was more holistic. And they had seen a lot of improvement and she just thought about me and wanted to let me know. And at that point, like nobody knew that anything was going on with my daughter. Nobody knew that I was sick again. It was just such a God thing out of nowhere that she just messaged me. So I looked into the doctor, looked kind of weird, but I was like, well, if it looks weird, it's probably going to work because that's what happens with Lyme disease. The doctor seems weird and that's normally what works. So I made an appointment for myself first because I was not going to let my daughter be the guinea pig. And I started going there and I went there for about three months before I decided if my daughter was going to go. And we, um, obviously I was, I was doing some, having some improvements. So we took my daughter and, um, she started to see some improvements as well, but not as fast as I was hoping. And that was hard, but I had to remind myself, she didn't have a healthy start to begin with. It's not like she had this grown body with a strong immune system and, you know, developed healthily and then got sick. She was born sick. And so I had to remind myself, we had a lot, a lot more layers of the onion to peel back for her than I realized. And we got my husband into treatment as well. 
he had the least amount of symptoms and had not been sick very long. So he's doing really well. His biggest thing was like more so the mood, like the anger, the outbursts, forgetfulness, those kinds of things. But for him, he got better pretty quick, which is really encouraging to see. I didn't expect myself, you know, to be better in like a month or my daughter, but I also didn't think that it would take this long. My daughter's made a lot of improvement. Um, but I just kept getting really sick and it's really frustrating. I feel like I'm the sickest that I've been in my entire life, which is hard, especially when you're a mama and you're trying to take care of your baby. And then you feel like you, you're not contributing at home because you can't do anything and you can't get out of the bed and the dishes are piling up. But I know, I know that I'm making progress but it's just a really long, difficult journey. So let me ask you as uh, fellow moms and as spouses of, of, of husbands that have Lyme disease, a couple of the questions that I know is on everyone's mind. Uh, and the first is um, what, I'm gonna ask you Amy first and then ask Ashley to uh, weigh in. Um, Amy, what is your, your position on the sexual transmission of Lyme disease? Do you believe that Lyme disease can be sexually transmitted? And do you believe that perhaps your husband's Lyme disease was as a result of having intimate contact with you? 100%. We know that's how he got Lyme disease. And it bothers me so bad how doctors say that that can't happen when it's so evident that it can. Well, when you say 100%, how do you know 100% for sure that your husband got Lyme disease as a result of intimate contact with you? He had never been bit by a tick, which obviously people don't know. Sometimes they don't know if they've been bit by a tick or not. But his symptoms started very shortly after we got married. So it was pretty obvious. <laughs> well, but Amy, you know, one of the things that... Uh, Dr. Brian Fallon had argued, and he's one of the top Lyme disease doctors in the world. He's from Columbia University uh, and, and very much, you know, very much in line with all of the, you know, the, the, the high level, um, you know, work that's being done on, on um, Lyme disease. He's a brilliant guy. In his book, he argued that the reason why there is, um, uh, you know, in, in most cases, um, when, when one partner has Lyme and another partner has Lyme, when they're che checking vaginal secretions and sperm and they're finding Lyme in both, that that's really as a result of just living in a tick endemic community and everybody's getting bitten all the time. And that as a result of everybody getting bitten all the time, it's really a consequence of just regular contact with ticks rather than it being sexually transmitted. And the argument about against sexual transmission is that although uh, this bacteria is a spirochete, uh, and, and we know that, um, that there are other sexually, sexually transmitted diseases that are spirochetal, um, that this form of spirochete cannot live outside of the body, right? Mm -hmm. So as a result, there, you know, at least doctors like Dr. Fallon, uh, who again is a really good man and is certainly not a Lyme denier by any such imagination, his entire career is dedicated to treating people with, uh, with, um, with chronic Lyme disease. You know, he's arguing against it. So what is your reaction to, uh, reaction to um, you know, people like Dr. Fallon arguing that it's really, you know, all of you living in a tick endemic community, it's not as a result of the exchange of fluids during intimate contact? Yeah, and I understand where people with those views are coming from, but also for me, my husband did not 
grow up around here. He lived at the beach and in their area, they really don't have a lot of ticks. It's very unheard of for someone to get bit by a tick in the area that he's from. And the area that I live in as well, I'm not the only person who has Lyme disease here, obviously, but it's not very common. It's not like we are in one of those areas that is really well known for Lyme disease and the ticks and things like that. And the timing of his symptoms and when he started getting sick, it's just shows a lot of evidence to being sexually transmitted. But let me, let me, let me challenge you on that uh, because we're having fun talking about this. Yeah. He, he, he moved. There is, there is a temporal connection between being married to you and Mm -hmm. getting Lyme disease, right? That's true. But also there's a temporal connection between him moving to the same community you guys are living in and then him getting Lyme disease. So although maybe he wasn't living in a tick endemic community before, he is certainly living in a tick endemic community now. And within a year of living in a tick endemic community, he gets sick. So isn't it just as likely that he was getting bitten by ticks in this now new experience of living in a tick endemic community rather than, rather than, um, you know, having intimate contact with you or maybe a combination of the two, right? I mean, we just don't know. Yeah, obviously anything could be possible, but I, especially with the correlation of Lyme being passed in utero, to me, it just shows that it can be passed from person to person and it's not unlikely for it to be passed, you know, sexually transmitted. Okay. Well, there's one other piece of this that I want to explore with you and that is um, you know, of course, you you were able to manage, your body was able to manage the Lyme bacteria for many years before you got sick. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until there were, there were stressful experiences in your life that were immunocompromising that caused you to get sick, right? Now, let's mm-hmm. think about your husband. Let's say he got bitten by a tick. He's now living in a tick endemic community. And now his wife is sick. His baby is sick. I mean, he, you talk about having stress. I mean, his mm-hmm. daughter is sick. There's nothing more stressful for a dad, I can tell you, than having a sick child, Right. So, you know, perhaps, you know, again, I want to debate this with you a little bit. He's now living in a tick endemic community. He's now getting bitten by ticks. And now he's got this overwhelming stress where his beautiful wife is sick, his beautiful baby is sick. And holy cow, what could be more stressful than that? Oh, and by the way, he's got to work a million hours because his wife can't work anymore either because she's really sick. And then when he comes home, he's got to take care of everybody, wash the dishes and do all that kind of stuff. I mean, this poor guy, right? I mean, the stress was crazy um, and, 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 and had to be immunocompromising. Yeah, I guess my biggest response to that is he was tested before we got married and he did he was not positive at the time. So I do have, you know, some prior evidence that he wasn't testing positive beforehand. Otherwise, I wouldn't necessarily know. But he did have a history of a negative Lyme test beforehand and then a positive later on, which doesn't always mean anything, though. Yeah, no, no, but I mean, you're making a great argument, right? I mean, it, 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 I mean, I, I really like the logical construct you're using to bring yourself to that conclusion. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I thank you for debating this with me because you kicked my butt and you did a really <laughs> great job here. So, so Ashley, why don't you share with us, you know, your experience, right? Because your husband has Lyme disease. Um, you know, you have, you have uh, actually, I, I think all three of your children have Lyme, right? So I know you, you strongly believe um, you know, and, and, and by the way, I don't think there's a whole lot of debate in the community about congenital Lyme. I, I, I think the community has overwhelmingly accepted that Lyme disease is a congenital disease. I don't think there, there are many people that are debating that any longer. Um, and I know that, I know that, for example, the Lyme Life Foundation um, has demonstrated that over 50% of the people who, who they have given treatment grants to um, have, uh, have contracted Lyme congenitally. And, and the, the other big, you know, wonderful organization, uh, Live Lyme, 
50% of their uh, uh, grant recipients have, have uh, demonstrated that they have congenital Lyme. So there's not a whole lot of debate there, but I would like to actually get your perspective on, on uh, the sexual transmission of Lyme and whether or not you believe your husband contracted Lyme as a result of having intimate contact with you, or do you think maybe you're just all living in a tick endemic community um, and, uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps uh, he's also, uh, you know, just uh, been diagnosed with Lyme disease as a result of, uh, you know, a tick bite rather than contact with his beautiful wife. So several things. One is we live in Santa Barbara, California, and the Lyme critics would say, oh, we don't have Lyme here. So we wouldn't necessarily be considered, you know, heavily, uh, you know, with, uh, have a lot of people with Lyme. Oh, but you are. So I'll debate would, that with you right away. I would argue that because I've started my own Lyme group here and I have over a hundred people in my Lyme group and they all live in Santa Barbara. So, but so my husband was bit by ticks when he was younger, you know, when he went camping, he went on a school camping trip, uh, his, he would get ticks pulled off of him all of the time. He, you know, we always try to pinpoint, okay, well, what age was I, when did this start? Because I personally did not have a tick on me. Um, but my symptoms started, um, maybe around the age 12, um, you know, with the nausea and all of that. And then age uh, 15, I was fainting and body aches and headaches and all of those things. I was living in Northern California, which is a lot more wooded area. Um, I have seen documentaries where there are a lot more people that have Lyme in that area. So the theory is that either we both had Lyme and we didn't know it, or that one of us gave it to the other one. So my argument is if Lyme is found in other secretions, such as blood and skin tissue, and they can look at it under a microscope, why wouldn't it be in other bodily secretions, um, you know, in vaginal fluids or um, sperm, like you were saying, like it just scientifically, it doesn't make sense that Lyme would be in this tissue, but not this tissue. So it just, and we know that Borrelia likes to, you know, corkscrew its way in everything, everything, the brain, the bone, everything. So I personally feel that Lyme um, can definitely be sexually transmitted. I feel like scientifically it, it makes sense to me. Um, and I think that the congenital Lyme is getting more and more accepted, which I appreciate. I think part of that is because the CDC has it on their website now and people like Limelight are doing their research and they're, you know, creating documentaries and they're really getting the word out there. So I feel like that next piece of it would be that, you know, we need to focus a little more research on that and get that out to the public as well. I share that a lot on my stories and I have a lot of people that follow me that are in the medical community that have nurses and doctors, and I know they're seeing that. So I'm hoping that's, you know, getting a little light bulb, like, hmm, maybe, you know, maybe my patients are exhibiting some of these symptoms. Maybe I need to be a better doctor <laughs> or a better nurse. I'm hoping that's what I'm hoping when I put that out there, that they're seeing that. So we'll see what happens. So let me ask the two of you another sort of awkward question. But you know, one of the things that Matt always says about our podcast is there's no such thing as too much information and there's no awkward question. We all have to talk about these awkward things. Do you think it's more likely that a man can give Lyme disease uh, to a woman than it is for a woman to give Lyme disease to a man? 
just by virtue of the different types of fluid exchanges that are occurring from a man to a woman versus a woman to a man? Amy, let me have your thoughts on that. Um, I don't necessarily think so, because, I mean, when you think about the anatomy of how that happens, the man is entering into the woman where all of her fluids and secretions and everything may be, which, I mean, they're literally going into, it could be a Lyme infested area. I definitely think it could be passed either way. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had a friend years ago who used to say a penis is not a straw, so it's harder for men to get sexually transmitted diseases than, than a woman. But I mean, you're making a, a powerful argument as well, Amy, which is, which is, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, a lime is lime. So give me your thoughts on that, Ashley. And, and, and in, in, in addition to that, I'd like you to comment on another thing, which is, do you think maybe in your situation where both you and your husband probably had exposure to Lyme and your microbiome was probably managing Lyme, both of you, that perhaps um, it you were exchanging Lyme bacteria, uh, you were exchanging co-infections, and what was happening was it, you know, the, 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 the population in your biome became increased by the intimate contact that you were having, even though the two of you were able to manage it individually before you started having intimate contact. Yes, I think that's such an interesting question because I've I've thought about that. But going going back to your first question, um, you know, as far as secretions and bacterial load, I feel like maybe men possibly carry more because they have more fluid coming out of their body when you're being intimate. So, but I don't know. But women, um, you know, we we are more susceptible to things. We're more, more vulnerable to things and just the way that our anatomy is and our body is. And I, I think that, um, you know, in that moment, it kind of, it has a lot of factors that depend on where you at health wise, what's your immune system like, what's your environment like? So I think it's, it's a, it's a factor of things that could definitely affect it. Um, but yes. So interestingly enough, when my husband and I, uh, began to live together, um, I got more sick. Now we were being more intimate with each other, but the other piece of that is the home that we lived in was filled with black mold. So it was a combination of us being more intimate. So I do feel like maybe we are giving, maybe we had different types of Lyme. That's a possibility. And we're giving this to each other and we're making, you know, each other more sick. Um, two that were, surrounded by toxins and stress. And then I had my daughter and I, um, with my pregnancy, I always, my body falls apart with every pregnancy. Like I, I think my, in the, my last son in the middle of it was the only time I experienced pregnancy bliss, but otherwise I'm just sick the whole time. Um, and I got more sick with my daughter and I, I also didn't completely take care of myself with her, which I regret, but I sugar, I didn't really take care of myself. So I think that also had a factor, but yeah, I think that if we oddly enough came together and we both had Lyme that it made things worse. And I, when I watched that documentary under our skin, um, they do bring that up. And so I did contact old partners and I did let them know that I had been diagnosed with Lyme and there was a possibility that I could have maybe given it to them. I have not had any other person 
um, tell me that they also have Lyme, so. So let me ask you another question, and Amy, I'm gonna ask you at first and then ask uh, um, Ashley to respond. Uh, one of the observations we had made in, you know, in our journey at Take Boot Camp is that there appear to be more women affected with chronic Lyme disease than men. Uh, and we wanted to be careful about that observation. And we've talked with other Lyme groups, such as LymeDisease.org and, uh, and other Lyme groups. And what, what we discovered from them is that they were like us having, having um, you know, difficulties finding as many men as there were women. And by the way, we've interviewed many, many men. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it's exclusive. And then when the Limex, um, when the Limex um, work was started to be done, uh, and they hired a group from Cambridge to locate people for an interview process that they wanted to use as the foundational um, tool for building out the Limex um, contest rules. They had a lot of difficulty finding men. In fact, we had to give them a whole bunch of men because they were having trouble even getting any men. And we, you know, we had a whole certainly list of men that we had interviewed that uh, were willing to participate as, as sort of background uh, information. So, um, uh, Amy, what is your thoughts about whether or not the um, female immune system is different than the male immune system? And whereas uh, the, the female immune system certainly protected women from COVID and the impact of COVID better than the male immune system, but possibly the uh, female immune system is not as effective at, um, at uh, battling the you know, Lyme disease than perhaps the male immune system. I feel like a lot of times when you look at it, I feel like men are the ones who get sick with viruses and colds and the flu, those types of things, that's normally what knocks them down, which is why there's always a joke about a man has a cold and he's dying because it knocks him down. Well, it could be we're just big babies too. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) But for women, it feels like, I feel like when I read of someone being chronically ill, whether it's with Lyme or something else, a lot of times it's a young woman. And I, I think that it has a lot to do with hormones as well. We have so many hormone and endocrine disruptors that we didn't used to have with chemicals and perfumes and detergents and all of those things that affect women more than they do men. Our hormones are just different. So I think a lot of times the reason we have those chronic infections and chronic illnesses is on a hormonal and like an endocrine level. So, you, but you also think the toxic load is greater for women because of perfumes and for you know hair products and for makeup and makeup, yeah, everything, stuff, right? Yeah. So, you know, and 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 we've had many folks on this podcast talk with us about that. In fact, you're lucky enough to have one of the experts on mm-hmm. on uh, remaining beautiful and using beauty products without having the toxin load increase. That's one of the things that Ashley is most well known for in the community. Uh, so that's that's a really cool issue that you're that you're raising, and we interviewed this really really powerful young woman um, who uh, who's in the beauty industry, and uh, and and she and she does she uses a lot of you know these toxic products, and what she found was the more she worked, the sicker she got, and the more she you know she didn't use these products when she was you know serving her 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 clientele, uh, the healthier that she had gotten, and and uh, you know unfortunately it was very painful about that story was that she was a single mom who was raising her two children and had to continue. To to work in that industry uh, and had to use these toxic products because that was the only way that she could support her family. But 
you know, the sort of the toxic load that we're all dealing with is certainly making us more vulnerable to Lyme disease. And now women have a greater toxic load that they're carrying because of, you know, these, these social standards and these beauty standards. Um, and quite frankly, the lack of education that's available to women, unless they come in contact with people like Ashley, who can help them to learn, uh, you know, help folks in the community learn that if you want to use beauty products, you can you can have the balance where it's not going to be unhealthy. And still, if those if those products are, are products you want to use, you can still use those products. So actually, give us your reaction um, to, uh, you know, to the concept of of, you know, the toxic load having an impact on women differently than men. And I'd also like you to talk as a nurse, maybe about why uh, why the female immune system, which, you know, quite frankly, had protected women from the cytokine storm that was killing people with uh, killing many more men than women with with COVID. But but um, but seems to not work as well for women in the uh, in the uh, in the Lyme arena. Right. I think we definitely as men and uh, men and women, we get sick differently. So if you look at my husband and I, as far as Lyme, um, he has very different symptoms than I do. I am much more sick. I have a lot more things going on with my body. My body is falling apart more. I feel like um, my theory is that um, it comes down to hormones uh, play a big part in it. Our cycles play a big part in it. Um, you know, when we are um, just about to start our menstrual cycle, our lymph fills with all of our hormones and it's clogging those ducts where normally, you know, if we have any die off or we have any bacteria that needs to circulate out of our bodies, it can't, it just kind of stays in there and we get more brain fog, we get more pain, we get more inflammation, all of those things. Um, and I think the big difference between my husband and I is I don't have good circulation. I think that's a huge part of why I experience so many symptoms. He has great circulation and great elimination. Like I don't like, I have a lot of gut issues. I I'd say, um, you know, my very first symptom I ever had, um, I was two years old and I had constipation and I've had that my whole life. And I think that that actually makes me sicker. Um, my gut's not as healthy. My immune system's not as healthy. Um, so I think that that's the main difference because my husband too has to work many more hours. He's had to take on a second job. I've had to cut back and he has to do a lot more, but he's physically able to, I'm not. And, um, I definitely get jealous sometimes, but <laughs> I'm very thankful that he's able to do that. Um, as far as COVID, I don't, I, I feel like, you know, the people that it targeted had, um, things like diabetes, um, heart disease, um, a lot of those things that men, um, tend to have, you know, 50 or older and they smoke, they have a high stressful job, or they're just responsible for so many things. Um, I think that that's maybe why men, had it worse for that. But in our family, we all kind of went through that. And I was the most sick. <laughs> Everybody else was like, Oh, little tiny cough. Well, maybe I feel a little bit tired. I was over there dying in my bed for three weeks. So I just, for me, I just don't have a very strong immune system. So I mean, why don't you talk to us about how you're doing today? Um, and uh, what kinds of things you're working on now to uh, get yourself to the next step in your healing journey? Um, 
So today has honestly been a terrible day. I was really glad that I didn't have to dress up for this um, because I'm still in my pajamas and it's evening, but that's okay. Well, you still look um, wonderful despite not being dressed up. I'm, I'm dressed <laughs> up and I look nowhere nearly as good as you. <laughs> well, thank you. I've been working on killing off a nasty parasite the past um, month and a half. So that's been really rough. And you know, the doctors tell you to, you know, make sure you're like resting and not overdoing it but I'm a mom and my husband works in ministry and we're a go, go, go. And I don't have time to rest. So I know that I'm making it worse on myself. Um, but we are now in yesterday. We started off the next phase of killing off Lyme. So I've been feeling it today, but I am reminding myself that um, I've felt like this before and I have gotten better and it is possible to get better again and reminding myself that it's very important to stay hopeful but I guess the best part would be if anybody has seen the video of my daughter that we've been talking about, she, um, it started with her physical therapy journey at 18 months old and it goes through it. Um, I just posted an updated one that now at three and a half years old, she's finally independently walking and has been walking for three weeks. So that's giving me the hope that I've been needing in all of this. So um, now I want you to look back now on your journey, right? Uh, and uh, what would you tell the little girl who was seven years old and had gotten bitten by a tick? What would you tell her if you had to have the opportunity to talk to her, what she needed to do to prepare for this journey? And what kinds of things would you recommend that she do so that she could have an easier journey than the journey that you've had? Um, I would tell her that it's going to be really, really hard, but you're going to be okay, even when you feel like you're dying. And it might not go away as soon as you feel like it. I didn't expect that I would be almost 24 and still sick or sick again. But I would tell her to not lose hope and to listen to herself. Because I think if I would have listened to myself instead of shoving my symptoms down, trying to just be okay for everybody else, I think I would have gotten help sooner and not gotten as sick as I did. Okay. So now let's talk about your transformation, right? Because you're becoming a leader in the community. And uh, one of the ways you became a leader in this community is you were willing to share uh, your daughter's journey with the world, right? And, and uh, you know, we, we had actually uh, reposted the really powerful video that you had first posted about your daughter before the one that you posted today. Um, and I, I have goosebumps because it was really moving to me and 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 the folks in our community. In fact, I think it was one of the most the most viewed videos we ever posted on our platform. Uh, so, talk to us about how you felt called to share your daughter's journey with the world, and how you decided that you were going to be one of the leading moms in this community, despite having all the challenges that you're dealing with with uh, with trying to manage your own health. Through being sick, I learned that you have to advocate for yourself and seeing my mom stand in the doorway of the pediatrician and advocating for me. I wanted to do that for my daughter and knowing what I know from being sick, I wasn't going to accept these possible diagnosis that these different doctors had for her. Well, it could be this, or it could be this. I'm like, no, we're not going to do the could be's. We're going to treat what we know it is because we can work with that. And if something pops up later down the road, we'll work with that then. But I just wanted some, if it was just one mom out there whose baby 
started to regress a little bit, but it wasn't your typical regression with other well-known things. Like I just wanted to help another mom whose baby just wasn't okay. So they didn't have to jump through all the hoops that I had to jump through to find out what was wrong. So I mean, you're a person of faith and you shared with us that your husband is in ministry. Talk mm-hmm. to us about what role your faith played in your journey and how going through this journey helped you to become an even, uh, an even stronger person of faith. Well, it definitely tested my faith. That's for sure. But at the same time, it's my faith is what got me through all of it. Um, it was really hard to be sick because I thought that God was mad at me for a really long time. It was, why did you let this happen? Why are all my friends healthy? Why did I wanted to be a professional soccer player and I had to stop playing sports. I was like, what is going on? But in that, I actually found my love of music. I couldn't play soccer anymore. So I sat down at the piano and I started writing music and I started writing worship songs. And I think I spent more hours crying at the piano, just letting it all out than I did anywhere else. It became my therapy session. And I've gone on to be able to sing my songs at church and lead other people in worship through the songs that I wrote when I felt like I was dying and I felt like there was going to be no light at the end of the tunnel. And even on days like today, when I feel like it's all crumbling down around me, I think about where I've been and where I'm at now and what God has brought me through. And he didn't bring me this far just to bring me this far. Okay. So now let's, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is faith on a regular basis. And we don't, we don't, um, although Matt and I are both Christians, we don't, we don't advocate for a particular faith and we don't proselytize because that's not what we are called to do on this podcast. But we do talk about faith and the role that faith plays in a journey and the importance of having faith in yourself. Now we think it's a shorter journey if you have faith in God to also have faith in yourself, but talk to us about how faith, your faith in yourself was an important part of this journey and how your belief that you had the capacity to get better because you would listen to yourself and because you were a resourceful person allowed you to make advances on your healing journey. I definitely think that it's so important to have faith in yourself because I think once you lose faith and you lose hope, it's really hard to get better because there's such a connection between the mental and the physical when there's a disconnect there, you're not going to get better. It's not this part of the body's okay. And this part of the body's not it's connected. And when you lose that hope, your body feels that that's why there's physical responses to emotional things and vice versa. It's all connected. And the minute you lose faith, the minute you lose hope, you start to decline and you're not going to get better. So it was so important to like, when you feel like literally like you feel like you're dying, you have to hold faith in yourself that your body knows what it's doing. Your body was made to do this, even though it doesn't feel like it in that moment. And you can get better no matter how hard it is. So let's talk about one more piece of faith. And that is as a person of faith, you recognize that you are put on this earth to serve. 
to serve other people, right? And you serve your husband and you serve your child and you're serving the other people that you are you are fellowshipping with through your through your music ministry. But you're you're required as as a person of faith to serve the world. And that played an important part, I'm assuming, in you deciding to share your daughter's journey, right? Because she's too small to make that decision herself. And and we're always very careful on this podcast when we talk about children because Ultimately, it's their story, and they'll decide when they tell their story. So we've been touching on this very broadly, but you felt called because your duty to serve to share your daughter's story or pieces of your daughter's story before she had the opportunity to make the decision how she's going to share it, because as a person of faith, you're required to serve. Yes. And it was just so important for me. Like I said, if there was just one mom out there that I could help find out what was going wrong with her baby, then I knew that I was making a difference because if I didn't know about Lyme, I wouldn't know what was wrong with my daughter. And I, I spent so many hours on Instagram and Google and all these things trying to figure out what could be wrong. What could be wrong? Like, is it something else? And I'm like, no, I know what it is. And I don't want another mom to be spending her nights on Google, trying to figure out what's wrong with her baby when just she could be scrolling on Instagram and see this video and have an aha moment on how to help her sweet baby. Well, I mean, uh, you know, before I let Ashley ask you the final question, I want to thank you for being, you know, a, a beautiful person of faith. I want to thank you for sharing your daughter's story with us. And I want to thank you and your husband both for being such, you know, beautiful people and being willing to uh, go where the spirit takes you and to make this information available to anyone else who may need that help. So thank you so much. And so, with that, Ashley, I'll let you ask the final question for our good friend, Amy. In alignment with exactly what you were just saying, that was my, my question is, what do you want parents to know most about Lyme and how to help their children? I think the biggest thing would to be listen to your children. Um, that was hard for me. And it was really hard to not be resentful towards my family for not believing that I was sick at first, um, that I wasn't just a really lazy teenager who didn't want to get out of bed and that I was actually feeling bad. But to take your children seriously and to advocate for them, because if they're saying something's wrong, then something is wrong. And no, it may not be Lyme. It may be something else. But I knew that I personally, I never wanted to, to deny my daughter care. And I never wanted her to get to the point that I got. And so I didn't care how many doctors I had to take her to or where I had to take her. I just knew I wanted her better because my mom did the same thing for me. So I want to thank the two of you for this really powerful conversation. I want to thank both of you for sharing so much of the intimate parts of your life so that other people can learn from that and do that in a very very comfortable and very professional way. So Ashton Marber, as always, we, we love you here at Tech Bootcamp and we thank you for making all of your, your brilliant contributions. And Amy, uh, thank you for becoming one of our new friends and actually a member of the Tech Bootcamp community. Uh, and we, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us and our listeners. And we know that folks are really going to love uh, hearing your story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Tech Bootcamp interview with our guest, Amy Packer, to our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Amy Packer, visit her Instagram at Amy Noel Packer. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, 
Tech Bootcamp has created a TechBite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at techbootcamp.com backslash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode update of our Tech Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback. Please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.